0: You have a Bible, I invite you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the sides of the tech booth back there. You can just, excuse me, meander that way, uh, grab a Bible. If you need to borrow it, you can borrow it. If you need to take it with you because you don't have a Bible that you can easily read and understand, it's our gift to you. That translation is a translation I'll be reading from this morning. And, um, translation that we consistently do that from. So I invite you to do that. Uh, if you've been tracking along with us, you notice that we're not going to finish 1 Timothy today. We'll do that next week. Uh, there's just been something lodged in my heart that I've been trying to figure out how to say and when to say it, and this is that moment. And so in 2 Samuel um, 12, uh, we're going to look at a story uh, about King David. Uh, this, is, this is right after 2 Samuel 12 follows 2 Samuel 11. That's very profound, isn't it? It just gets better from here, people. Second uh, Samuel eleven, Second Samuel eleven is when uh, or where the Scripture records a story about David and Bathsheba. Ringing any bells now? Second uh, Samuel eleven, uh, David is in a place where he shouldn't be. See something he shouldn't have seen. And uh, as many of you know, once you see some things, you can't unsee them. And so in this case, David uh, ends up in an adulterous relationship, impregnates Bathsheba, um, and ultimately has to try to cover up his sin, uh, has his, excuse me, her husband Uriah killed in battle. So we've got passions that are mismanaged and out of place and out of whack, and a cover up. That sounds a lot like our cultural moment. It sounds a lot like our political scene. And so today, that's what I really want to take on. Use this story uh, to try to address our cultural moment and try to deal with our political scene. Now, let me be very clear from the outset. Uh, if you think at the end of the day uh, today, when we get done here in a few minutes that I will tell you how to vote or whatever. Uh, That's not the case at all. Uh, The the two uh, major party candidates that the people have put forward uh, are both incredibly flawed and have so much baggage that they need an entire Amtrak train to carry. So, uh, I mean, I just want to be clear about all of that. I'm not here to endorse or to push you towards something. I'm here to think about what we need in this hour, in this moment, And what we need in this moment, church, is for the church to be the church. That's what we need. Long before we need uh, donkeys or Republicans or third parties or whomevers, um, no matter your animal of choice, we need the church to be the church. And And that's really the whole point today, is just to call us to do that. And if that's going if that's going to happen, if that's going to be the case, if that's going that is going to be our reality. Um, as much as we love David, um, you know we need to learn from this moment right here in his life and let it speak to our moment. and so in first sam, excuse me, second Samuel chapter twelve. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. We'll come back to that verse in just a minute. So he, Nathan came to him Now, there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now, if you're in that moment right there and you hear that story, what are you going to do? Stamp your feet and be so mad, so angry, right? This is what happened. Verse 5, then David's anger was greatly, not just kindled, but greatly kindled, against the man, And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to what? Die. If God's alive, this guy deserves to die. That's what he's saying. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Don't just pause right there before we get to the rest of the story. If the church in this cultural moment, if the church is going to be the church, there may be a hundred things that we need to do. I know that there are three. And this is number one. We need to care about character. We need to care about character. Why? Because God cares about character. Why would he send Nathan to David if he was only concerned with policy? Why would he send Nathan to David if the prosperity of of the nation of Israel was the only thing on God's mind? Why would he send Nathan to David if, and we could keep going and going and going, he sent Nathan to David because God cares about the character of David? Well, of course he does. Well, I, I, you're right. He does. Of course he does. But, because character will sustain you when, when expertise and experience and skill sets and counselors, character will sustain you when all that other stuff fails. He sent Nathan to David because he cares about character, and you and I, we need to care about character. Uh, typically, and I have been listening a lot uh, to the political conversations. I've had several myself, some so with you, uh, exchanged uh, emails with others, been on Facebook, list, listening and watching. And, and this is this is there have been kind of four typical responses. And it's not just about politics. Here, response number one is something like this: that, that we are dismissive towards sin, or we downgrade, we downgrade the sin. And it sounds typically something like this. Well, it's just not that big of a deal. It's just not, I mean, nobody's really going to know. It's just not that big of a deal. And in doing so, what do we do? We pick up the rug and we just, we try to sweep the sin right under it. The problem is what gathers underneath the rug, right? Right? Or or uh, the, the other way that this goes by downgrading sin is that we hold on to one little piece of truth to the neglect of all the other truth and say, well, see, here's where I am, here's where I am, here's where I am, and neglect all of this other stuff. We downgrade, we downgrade the sin. When we do so, listen, when we downgrade the sin, what happens is that we're saying God's holiness really doesn't matter all that much. And sin isn't really that big of a deal. So when Peter comes along, quoting Leviticus, Peter comes along later in the New Testament and says this, um, be holy, this is what God says, be holy as I am holy. We're like, Meh. Or when Paul writes in Romans chapter 6 that the wages of sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. We don't think it's all that serious. So when we downgrade the sin, what we're saying is, God, you're not really who you say you are, and the consequences of these things are not really um, what what, uh, you say they're going to be. And so downgrading the sin, whether it's in our political discourse or in our own personal lives, downgrading the sin is speaking, it's saying something about what we actually believe about God and what he is actually going to do in the world. The second way to do this is to disparage the messenger seen a lot of this lately where somebody will say something and then the person who's saying it gets attacked. And it sounds oftentimes something like this. Well, don't you have any of your own flaws? And what's the answer to that? Of course we do, but we're not talking about those right now. You ever been in that part of a conversation where you're sitting there, engaged with somebody? Uh, for me as a pastor, it happens sometimes, sitting across the table in my office, we're getting a visit about something going on, and then the person will get so jacked up about this. You know, well, don't you have problems? Absolutely, we do. I got a list a mile long, Just, but well, we're not talking about that right now. You came in because you wanted to talk about your stuff. <clears throat> or, this happened the other day on TV, well, I think we're all sinners. Wouldn't you agree? Well, yes, we're all sinners. That I mean, Yes, we have to care about character and we cannot, we cannot disparage the messenger. We can't shove it off on the person who's who's telling the truth. The third way that we typically respond, or we've seen typical responses to this, is to damage another, that is to blame shift, to shift it off of here uh, onto somebody else. And I just, in my mind, this is how this plays out in this conversation with Nathan and David. Can you imagine if Nathan came along to David and said, hey, let me tell you a little story here, and then said, now that Bathsheba, she's not a nice person, is she? Can't really trust her. Or if he had allowed David to do that, to blame Bathsheba for David's sin, for his stuff, and again, we see that in our cultural moment right now, that we, we blame shift, we, we shove it off. If that doesn't work, then the last strategy, the last typical response is to deflect. We deflect onto others. Look how bad those other people are. I mean, I'm bad, but look, they're far worse. David, oh, look, I mean, but the Ammonites here, the Ammonites here, we need to talk about the Ammonites. That was so long time ago, and that we got big problems right now. You know, we got to deal with those things right now. This has come up multiple times for me in conversation and in other places, and so I just wanted to go ahead and address it. Um, when we deflect on others, it, it kind of shows up in one of, for me, I, think, I guess because what I do, people show up with biblical examples. Uh, and one of them is David and Solomon. Well, I'm sure, we should care about character and all that kind of stuff, but I mean, I, this is something said to me. Uh, you know, I sure am glad that there weren't video cameras and hot mics when David and Solomon were king. One, they were appointed king, not elected. Two, their problems happened after they were appointed king, Uh, you know, not before. Uh, And three, it ended in repentance for both of them, according to Psalm 51 for David and according to the book of Ecclesiastes for Solomon. Not the same. Second one that uh, comes around is Samson. Got into a fairly lengthy conversation about this. uh, with, with um, someone, my wife noted me on Facebook, saw this. Samson, judge, right? Imperfect person, you know, Has a, there's this refrain in the book of Judges. After a person judged, uh, one commenter said this, after a person judged uh, th- that the land had rest for so many years, that the land had rested four times in the book of Judges had rest for so many years. You know what happened with Samson when he was done? It does not say that. In fact, the book of Judges just gets worse from there. There's no rest after Samson, right? He quite literally, the only legacy for Samson in the history of Israel is that he brought the house down on himself. Think about that. The legacy is he brought the house down on himself. And then thirdly, the third one is Cyrus. He's a Persian king that God uses to rescue the people of Israel, bring them out of captivity to Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, and send them back to their homeland. That's Ezra Nehemiah, kind of that time frame of biblical history. And the issue with that is Cyrus, according to Isaiah chapter 45, Cyrus is a forerunner. He's a picture. Because you've got, the Bible calls him the anointed one and the righteous one, and the anointed one and the righteous one rescue God's people. Now, does that ring any bells to anybody? An anointed one, a righteous one, rescues God's people. Deliverance come from some, comes from someone who is completely unexpected that God calls the anointed one and the righteous one. Just this ringing any bells? That's Jesus that's the picture of. God uses Cyrus to, to prophetically picture um, Jesus. So um, when we deflect on others, what we're really doing though is turning the attention from ourselves instead of dealing with this. So um, when we care about character, here's the thing. Uh, This is certainly true on on a big picture uh, scale, certainly true in our political uh, realm right now. Here's the thing. It's easy to shoot at big targets though, isn't it? The target that you and I need to care about most, the character that we need to care about most is my own character, your own character, and then collectively our character as a church. So let, let's focus on those big things. We need to care about other character. Absolutely. 100%. I am completely great with that. In this case, though, let's start right here. Let's start in here. Let's care about our character, uh, my character, and then let's care about our character, care about your character, care about our character. Let's start there. When we care about character, for the church to be the church, we have to care about character, and let's start with us. Secondly, we have to preach repentance. So. Look back at verse 1, and then we're going to skip down to verse 7. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Don't don't miss that. I've not gotten over that this week. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Do you see that? God saw what was going on, and he refused to leave it unaddressed, so he sent um, his voice uh, piece, his mouthpiece, the one who was going to speak for him. He sent Nathan to David. You and I are sent also. There is a world out there that needs to know the truth. And guess who God is going to use to speak to it? When you gather around the water cooler, when uh, you know, you're hanging out in the cube farm talking to the people around you, uh, when you uh, go to the grocery store, when you're at the soccer field or baseball field or whatever it be, guess who God is going to use to speak the truth into, um, a, into a deceived culture? Guess who God is going to use to put light into a dark place? Who's he going to use? You. That's you. We we are sent. Just like God sent Nathan to David, so you and I are sent. Here's the thing though, if we're not caring about character, we will lose the moral clarity that we so need. And if we lose the moral clarity, let's be clear about this, if we lose the moral clarity of God, we will not have the moral authority of God to carry with us. One more time, if we lose the moral clarity of God, we will not have the moral authority of God. Of God, Both of these, the clarity and the authority, uh, these are both the church's gifts to society. You and I have the opportunity to offer these things to society. <clears throat> and we cannot, the tendency might be in these kind of days to withdraw, to fortress, if you will, to kind of hem ourselves in. Uh, the, the world's too busted. It's too dark. It's, they, we, they can't afford for us to either. They cannot. We are sent. And then skip down. Well, let's keep reading the story here. Uh, after David gets all blustery, his anger was greatly kindled. As the Lord lives, the man who's done this deserves to die. Verse 6, he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing because he had no pity. And then verse 7, Nathan said to David, what? You are that guy. You are the man. Not like, you the man. No, no. You are that man. You're so... Uh, turned, you know, kind of wrapped around the axle about this guy. You're that guy, David. That's who you are. So he sends us and he doesn't just send us, but he sends us with a message that you and I have a message. And uh, Nate just continue to read here. Nathan said to David, you are the man, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel. And I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more, and I would have given you way more than this. Verse 9, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. We have a message, and it goes something like this. Man, the world's pretty broken, isn't it? Yeah, sure it is. And so are you. I mean, that, that's the message. So we, we can't just talk about the world. We have to talk about those people who comprise the world. The world's pretty broken, right? Oh, yeah, it's pretty broken. And so are you. Good news, though. That's the bad news. I mean, we're all busted. The good news is, is what? Jesus is in the business of rescuing people who repent. I mean, over and over and over again, we see this all throughout the New Testament. And certainly even here, God pursues David in order to capture his heart and turn him from his sin. God pursues David and he's saying, hey, listen, I'm in the business of rescuing people who repent. I I am in that business. And so I just, I say that to you uh, um, to to point this out. We can think of a hundred verses. This is the one that just popped to mind. Um, this week, as I was thinking about it, if you've been around church, you know this verse. If you don't, this is great news. Uh, <clears throat> 1 John 1.9 says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us or to purify us from all unrighteousness. One more time, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's an incredible promise. When we talk about the world is broken and so are you, but Jesus is in the business of rescuing those who repent, that's such good news. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Listen, I mean, you sit down with somebody this week, you deal with this in your own heart. The good news is when we come to God and we say, God, boy, we've messed up here, just like David did, just like others have done, we come to God, oh, God, we've messed up. Here I am again, uh, bringing this to you. What does God say? Well... No, he says, I forgive you. He is faithful to forgive you. Faithful means every time you come to him, every time you bring your sin to him, he is going to forgive you. Why? Because you're such a great confessor? No, because Jesus died. And when he died, he bore how many of our sins? How many somebody? All of them, not some of them, not the ones that people know about or the ones that people don't know about. He bore all of them, all of them. And so if Jesus bore all of them, then God has made his promise in Jesus to forgive us all of our sin. So we show up for the 586th time, and we say, God, here I am again, 586 times. I'm coming to you, and I'm going to give you this and say, God, this is wrong, and I'm struggling, and here it is. I'm going to confess this sin to you. I was wrong. Please forgive me. And God's not going to say, I'm sorry, my grace runs out at 585. He is faithful to forgive you. And not just faithful, but also just. Why just? Because Jesus paid the price that you and I needed to pay. He did that for us. And so if he's not, then, then Christ's sacrifice is not sufficient and for you and for me. And if it's not sufficient for you and me, then we are in some sort of trouble, people. And let me just bring this down to where you live and where I live. What does that mean for you and for me? Because if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness because Jesus is in the business of rescuing those who repent. There is not a person in here who is so far gone that Jesus can't rescue you. There's not a person so distant that his arm is not long enough to grab hold of you, so far away that when you go calling out, he's not going to hear you, so bound up in addiction that he can't free you, so um, uh, facing a mountain that he cannot deal with what's going on, so distraught with guilt and shame that he can't pull you up out of the mud and the muck. Listen, there is nobody in here, no matter where you've come from, no matter what your baggage is, and no matter who you're going to vote for, there is nobody in here that Jesus can't rescue. That's good news, people. And that's what we get to go forward with. That's what he sends us with. We're sent and we have a message. It comes along to say this, well, I mean, Okay, so David repented, but still all this bad stuff happened. And indeed, all of this bad stuff did happen. He talks about, I'm going to raise somebody up out of your own house. The sword's never going to leave your own home. Your your family, David, and indeed, chapter 13 talks about how Absalom, David's oldest son, um, uh, um, he... Uh, incites essentially a coup and David has to flee for his life. And there's all sorts of stuff that happens. He ends up doing exactly what uh, Nathan said was going to happen in terms of those who were left over from David's household and doing it in public and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, he does all of those things. The consequences, the consequences were what the consequences were. Just because you repent doesn't mean you're free of consequences. I'll just give you a very brief example. Uh, How many of you have ever eaten a late meal of either heavy Mexican food or heavy Italian food? Now, there are times when you go to bed and what? You're like, you're like laying on your left side trying to do the yoga pose or something to make it all digest or whatever. You're not sure it's going to happen. And then there are other times when you eat that late meal and you go to bed and you're just fine. What's the difference? Don't know. Sometimes God uh, spares us of the consequences. Oftentimes God does not. In this particular case, even though he repented, God did not spare David of the consequences. Listen, nor did he spare the nation of Israel. Nor did he spare the nation of Israel. David's personal sin had national implications. Just let that sink in, people. His national his personal sin had national uh, implications and national consequences. So, repentance does not save you from the consequences, which may very well still come your way. Well, then, I mean, that sounds a little scary then to go out to say those kinds of things. We're sent, we have a message, but that doesn't sound like a fun message to preach. What are we going to do? Well, I mean, you can imagine Nathan showing up to David's house. Hey, Dave, you got a second king? I need to visit with you about a story. And you're that guy. You can imagine what he carried with him in that. That's true. It's true. Getting the, uh, speaking the truth is sometimes very difficult to do. I, as a middle kid and a peace-loving kid and a, and a peacemaker, I don't love this stuff, but it's something we have to, in the old biblical phrase, gird up our loins and get ready to do. Uh, there was a quote that floated around this week um, in multiple places. It was attributed to George Orwell, whether or not he actually said it. It's worthwhile. Listen. The further a society drifts from the truth, the more it will hate those who speak it. whether or not he said it, he's right. Why do I know that? Because Jesus said something very similar, John 15. He's just modernizing Jesus. This is John chapter 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So we're in good company, that's what he's saying. If you are of the world, the world would love you, (coughs) excuse me, the world, that should be world, not word. The world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. It's not going to get any easier in our world, church family, to speak the truth and to preach the gospel, but it is exactly what the world needs more now than ever. We just have to be ready. If the church is going to be the church, we got to care about character and we had to preach the message that God's given us to preach. That's the message of repentance. And then lastly, we have to do right. So David says uh, in verse six, he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing because he had no pity. He's expecting people to do right. And, and because repentance will always lead to right action, like doing right follows consequentially um, uh, us repenting and turning away from our sin. And um, and certainly in David's case, uh, once he got out of the story and figured out what he did, that's exactly what he did. He repented and right action followed. In our case, uh, when we uh, care about character and when we preach the message of repentance, the last thing that we need to do, if the church is going to be the church, we need to do right. We need to do right. And let me just try to make application here and we'll wrap this up. How do we do right in this day and age? In this particular election season? Number one, let's pray. Let's I mean genuinely, let's pray. I, if you're posting more than you're praying, I think you may have things out of order. Um, it's not as if God is left with two or three or four choices. He's he's not He's not stressing this. Okay? So let's pray, let's be people who set these things before God and said, God, the glory of your name, would you do good and right in these kind of situations? Let's pray. Um, Second thing, you need to find a path to a clear conscience. Um, Whatever you choose to do next Tuesday, uh, two Tuesdays from now, uh, just find a path to a clear conscience. If you can figure out a way to do that and hold your nose and vote for one of the two Um, candidates uh, in the major parties, go for it. If you uh, can't and you have to figure out a way to vote for a third party, do that. If whatever it takes, just find yourself with a clear conscience. Why is that so important? Because that's what you have to live with. Pastorally, I'm telling you, that's what you have to live with when this is over. You have to look other people in the face. You have to look your kids in the face. You've got to look at others in the church family and go, well, this is what I did. If you get asked, you, get to, you have to live with that. Better than that, though, you have, to, you have to live with it before God. And so Paul says in Acts 24, verse 16, he says, I take pains. Don't miss that. I take pains pains to have a clear conscience before God and man. Why would he take pains to do that? Because he knows that he has to live with that. So however you need to do in order to find your path to a clear conscience, do that. Number three, vote. Actually go out and vote next Tuesday, two Tuesdays. from Go vote. Don't set it up. Do do it. Be engaged in the process. Um, it, It does matter. It does matter, and we will give an account to God for that. Number four, this is where, really, I I wanted to get to. uh, If we're going to be the church, doing right looks like all of these things so far, but it also looks like this, actions before arguments. Maybe, just maybe, church, we need to quit talking so much and actually get to do it. So, things like, uh, well, I'm pro-life. That's awesome do accordingly. What do you mean do accordingly? Being pro-life is way more than a political position. You with me? And it's way more than being anti-abortion. So if you're pro-life, find a single lady who's pregnant and figure out how to support her in that moment. If you're pro-life, go volunteer at a pregnancy center and try to encourage uh, 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 moms to be along the way. Uh, If you're pro-life, there are thousands of kids who need foster parents. If you're pro-life, there are kids who need adoption. I mean, if you're pro-life, let's be pro-life. Let's not just talk about it. Let's go do that. Well, I'm very concerned about our current educational system. Awesome. Me too. Uh, We partner with Wedgwood Elementary. The counselor over there is one of our church members. Um, uh, You can talk to her about signing up to be a tutor over there. You're concerned about our education system. Let's do something about it. Uh, actions before arguments. Let's go do that. Let's, not just talk. Let's go do that. Well, I'm concerned about poverty. Oh, great. There's a Habitat for Humanity Restore right down the road. It's a mile and a half from here. And you can get connected with them and then figure out where they're going to build their next house because over and over and over again, the stats are when a child um, has a, uh, a concrete floor or better to sleep on, their health goes up, their grades go up. I mean, there's just stats that fall around, that, that move around having a home that they get to call their own. So if you're concerned, let's go do something. Let's go do that. Here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to be a people. I don't want this for me and I don't want this for any of you individually or us. I don't want to be a people who talk and never do. Let's go do. There are things to do in the world. There is light to be shown in the world. There is darkness to be overcome. There is evil to be pushed back. There is injustice to be addressed. And you and I have the opportunity to go and do something. Actions before arguments. Furthermore, not just that. Listen, if you want to say something at some point to somebody, what will give you the credibility to say that thing that you've been doing? that you have been doing. Let's not fall into the trap that 140 characters is going to make a difference in this world. You know what's going to make a difference? Us doing something. We're the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Last thing. Unify. Let me just—I'm sorry. Let me pause it. Scroll this back just a touch, just a touch, because this leads into this unify thing. Uh, In an interview several years ago, Mike Huckabee was talking about um, uh, the church's response after Katrina. You saw it in media coverage. The AP released a story uh, in the in the church's response after Baton Rouge. Uh, the flooding and stuff in Baton Rouge, and over and over and over and over and over again, they would say, the government gets lost in the red tape, the churches are the ones who do stuff. Just to be clear, isn't that the way it should be? (laughs) Like, isn't that the way it's supposed to be? The church should be in there doing stuff. And they talked about uh, after Katrina and after the flooding and after and, and we could go through multiple catastrophes that have happened. And the, the people who show up with chainsaws to clear the road are church folks. They show up. And why are they clearing the roads first? Because right behind them are big buses and trucks full of church folks who are coming to cook and, and prep, prep food and all these other stuff. And so much so that the Southern Baptists, have multiple uh, kind of relief arm, uh, I mean, re- relief teams to, to go. And, and one of the people in the AP story here that, that I read this week, one of the people in the AP story said, yeah, those people, those Southern Baptist people, they fed 25,000 people a day through their little kitchen thing. And you thought your Thanksgiving was going to be big. Twenty. 20- Why did they? Because that's what they're they're supposed to be out there doing the stuff. The government's going to get lost in the red tape, and the church is going to be out there actually doing the stuff because that's what churches do. We do the stuff. Are you with me with that? Okay, so um, in light of that, in light of the church being actions and not arguments, then we get to unify. When a catastrophe comes along and and, and the church kind of rallies, I'm talking about the broad church, not just uh, Baptist churches, although, you know, glad to be a part of that organization when we get to do stuff like that. Um, but the broader church rallies and we get to work and get to do stuff. That unified church is the greatest force for good in the entire world. It is. And so when we get to harping at one another on Facebook or other places, one guy showed up on Twitter uh, this past week, uh, you know, if you don't vote for so-and-so, uh, God will not hold you guiltless. That's what he said. Listen, God's not going to hold me guiltless, not because of my vote. God's going to hold me guiltless because Jesus has forgiven my sin. Anybody with me on that? And here's the thing. Listen, here's the thing. Um, if, if somebody's snapping judgment at somebody else who votes differently than them, that's not a picture of unity, and that is not what God intends for us. This is what God intends. This is Jesus' closing prayer in John chapter 17. Can we get that one up, Jack? John 17. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. Don't miss this. That they may also be in us. Here's the purpose. So that. That's the purpose. So that what? So, so, so that we'll have, you know, nice buildings. No, 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 no. So that we'll have political influence and power. No, what? So that the world may believe that you've sent me. The whole purpose of unity in the church is so that the world would believe in Jesus. Check that out. And when the church rallies and acts in unity, lives in unity, doesn't harp at one another, doesn't do silliness like that, guess what? It is a force for good in the world. And it is a, such an incredible force, the world has never seen it or known anything like it. So do right. Last comment. Verse 15. Then Nathan went to his house. God sent Nathan to David. At the end of the story, Nathan went to his house. Two Wednesdays from now is going to come along. You know what you and I need to do? Go to our house and keep living. Because there are people around us who need to know Jesus, no matter who is going to be the president-elect. There are people around us who need the mercy of God in their lives, no matter who is going to be uh, the next representative or senator or whatever. There are, no matter the election outcomes in any Platform, in any place, at any level of government, there are people around us in our lives that just need us to be there doing what we do because we follow Jesus. Nathan went to his house. You and I need to go to ours and then live to make a difference. Why? Because two Wednesdays from now, Jesus is still going to be on the throne, folks. He's a king, he didn't get elected. You and I now have the opportunity to live like that's the truth. Let's do right. Let's do right. Let me pray.